Sometimes when we talk We don't know what the fuck So we have to call and ask a friend I wanna know the things you know It'll make a better show You're the one on whom we Hey everyone, welcome to UNFTR's Phone-A-Friend. Today is a real treat. We all get to live tuition-free inside the head of one of the most prominent intellectuals on the left, Ben Burgess. Ben is a Jacobin columnist, an adjunct philosophy professor at Rutgers University, and the host of the YouTube show and podcast, Give Them an Argument, personal favorite of mine. He's also the author of several books, including Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, and Christopher Hitchens, what he got right, how he went wrong, and why it matters. Now, I've long admired Ben's writing and his ability to engage in high-level political discussions without devolving into shouting matches. He's a wealth of knowledge, always brings receipts, and he maintains an inspiring level of optimism and curiosity as one of the most prominent multidisciplinary scholars in media. Today, we discuss economic systems, what's happened to the left movement in the United States to the extent that there is one, expressions and tendencies of socialist theory throughout history, and the deja vu, lesser of two evils choice that confronts the electorate. We even get Ben to drop an FMF reference so you know that I can die happy. I hope you enjoy our discussion today and remember to like and subscribe to the channel and comment below if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening to the pod, remember to leave us a positive review. Visit unftr.com to learn more about our new membership tiers, to access our directory of progressive resources, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and to read our essays or original articles from our partners at Newsbeat. And now, without further ado, my conversation with Ben Burgess. Ben Burgess, welcome to the show. I was able to kind of uh, get all my fan stuff out of the way because I know that can be annoying for people before we jumped on. But I just, I, I really did want to say thank you for uh, coming on to UNFTR. It's a great, great pleasure to have you here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So I figured we start in the present day and then I was uh, going to kind of take a tuition-free ride through your head to take advantage of the fact that you're here to go through some some socialist theory and uh, kind of bring our listeners up to speed on some of the concepts that we had gone over in a multi-part series over the summertime to see if we can kind of bridge the gap. But you had a discussion recently that has been happening all over the left that we've gotten a ton of feedback on at UNFTR, which is kind of the state of the Democratic Party yeah. in the context of what's happening with the progressive movement, if you can call it that, the fracture that has obviously splintered over the genocide in Gaza and a number of other externalities that I think are causing sort of a, a crisis on the on the the so-called left right now. But you and Nathan and a few others have been kind of going through, at least talking through what comprises the left and, and where some intersectionality might be to kind of assuage this idea of the lesser of two evils come the election time. And I'm just curious, like, how are you interpreting this moment in time for the left writ large as it faces sort of this this crisis with the election coming up? Yeah. So I, I had that conversation with Nathan and then I think maybe even the next day or like a couple of days later, an article in Jacobin that was about this. Uh, it's called like Joe Biden is 
assist in genocide in Gaza and imperil his reelection or something like that. And yeah, I guess there are a couple of issues here, but I want to I want to start with the one that's kind of most front of mind probably for most people, which is the sort of immediate subject of the conversation with Nathan, which was kind of reflecting on you know lesser evil arguments that you know we've we've both maybe made in the past and you know and and whether this changes those how and you know i i thought he'd be an interesting person to to talk about that with you know cuz cuz i know he's had very like well defined views on this stuff in the past my own view is that there is a rational case that's like pretty straightforward that if you live in one of the tiny handful of states where your vote actually might matter, then it is a preferable outcome, right? To to have a awful centrist Democrat than a Republican who's going to fill the National Labor Relations Board with hardcore union busters and do all of the other things that you know that we know he's going to do. And you know, I I think that you can see both of these people as as enemies, but still understand that they're different kinds of enemies. And that it might make a tactical or strategic difference to you, you know, which enemy you're you're fighting against, right? I mean, if you sort of yeah. imagine some scenario in a horror movie where the villain has like set up two rooms where there are horrible things that are going to happen that are going to try to kill you, and you get to choose, right? Like, you know, you don't say, "Oh, I refuse on principle to choose between these rooms." You try to figure out which one you and your friends have a better chance of surviving, and you, you <laughs> pick that one, right? That's always been my view on this. I put it in almost those terms in 2020. I will say I don't I don't think anything has changed about the sort of rational core of that argument, but I have lost a lot of my appetite for making it uh, in, mm-hmm. uh, this year for obvious reasons. You know, like especially I think about my home state of Michigan, where Biden's reelection chances are in serious trouble. It's one of the uh, states that uh, Trump won in 2016, and then that Biden won in 2020. And it's, you know, it, it's a serious issue that, you know, has the largest Arab American population of, of any state. And like, look, I'm not going to I'm not going to shake my finger at somebody who who can't bring themselves to to pull that lever because there is an actual, you know, no kidding genocide. I mean, if, if uh, you know, the word genocide seems like a bridge too far for anything that doesn't involve gas chambers, then, you know call it a sparkling ethnic cleansing, but there is this just deep human horror that's going on that, you know, that that Biden is facilitating in all sorts of ways, you know, and I think it's the most understandable thing in the world that a lot of people who are more closely identified with with the victims of that, who in some cases might actually have members of their extended families who are victims of that, you know, yeah. cannot possibly bring themselves to to vote for this guy. And, you know, if if I if I still lived in Michigan, could I, between now and November, kind of psych myself up to the point that I was capable of pulling the lever and then going home and throwing up? Maybe, right? Right. Uh, happily, I don't have that problem. I live in California where it, it does not matter whatsoever. You know, if Brother West is on the ballot, I'll probably vote for him. Otherwise, you know, I really hope we're not in a place in November where ceasefire is still a relevant thing to write in, but I have a horrible feeling that it might be. That I actually just got my mail-in ballot. That's probably what I'm going to do on the presidential line. Probably a clearer statement than uh, than voting for Marianne or Dean Phillips. So you know, I I think that on the one hand, yeah, I I might still make that calculation, but I I completely understand. I mean, if you just psychologically can't, right? That's the most reasonable thing in the world. 
I've always had a problem with like over moralizing the choices that people make when they're in the ballot box and they're confronted with like the bad choices that our ridiculous half democratic system leaves them at the end, right? Whether that's sort of moralizing in the direction of shaking your finger at third party voters or it's moralizing in the direction of, you know, saying, oh, you, you know, you voted for Biden, so you're responsible for everything, you know, that uh, that it's, it always kind of misses the point to me. And I think in this case in particular, you know, the main person whose fault it is uh, that Trump might win because because Biden is doing this is is Biden. And, and I, I really think it's a mistake to lose focus on that. Let's see if I can sort of artfully bridge the gap between uh, past and present then, because you in that discussion with Nathan, you played a clip from uh, Crystal and Sager's show where Crystal had kind of uh, kind of reconsidered her position from the, I think, now infamous debate with uh, Brianna Joy Gray, yeah. which I think was actually a really helpful debate. I, I actually found a lot of value in that because I think it was a pretty elevated. I, I didn't love the way Kyle was presenting some of the, the issues, mm. but I did appreciate the sentiment that was coming from what most outsiders would view as, as leftists that are aligned on nearly everything. Mm-hmm. The, and the, the case that I was making at the time was I, yeah. it's almost the as last, though that last time I saw all three of those people was at the first two's wedding. So like, I, I, you know, right. These aren't people who you think of as mortal enemies. Right. Yeah. And it, I think it was a respectful, but spirited discussion that, that teased out something that was interesting for me to see, which was it's almost as though during that moment in time, Crystal and Kyle couldn't hear the complete lack of hope that Brianna was projecting from a segment of the population that is underrepresented in, in that she was sort of expressing what some people might term accelerationist theory, but saying, you know, at what point do we draw that line and say we need a do-over? And so the, the bridge that I wanted to put to, to you actually goes back to a discussion that you had. One of my favorite discussions that you've ever had was with uh, David Friedman. <laughs> and, and you should know that uh, hashtag FMF, fuck Milton Friedman, is actually the slogan of our show. It's a <laughs> socioeconomic show. But I found the debate actually really, really fascinating. Yeah, Dave, and, Dave, David, for anybody who doesn't know, it would be Milton's son. Yeah, yeah. And we could, we could maybe talk about that another time because I am just, I am so utterly fascinated by that discussion. But, you know, one of the things that you were talking about is sort of this, you know, when do we, when do we clear the pieces off the chessboard? When do we actually start to reconsider the systems and the structures in the way that maybe a Michael Albert or an Esther Duflo might be thinking about or a Thomas Piketty? Those people aren't really being seriously considered, I think, in any sort of elevated global discussions right now. But there are certainly people that are doing that work to think about what another system might be like. So when you listen to somebody like Brianna, who's representing that sort of cultural boots on the ground aspect of nothing material changed between Biden and Trump. So why would you why would you insist that I am better off one way or the other or that, you know, people I'm speaking for are? At what point do we try to clear the pieces off the table? Like what what will be that breaking point that allows us to reconsider structures holistically from our political apparatus, but also to the economic framework that I think you're striving for Mm -hmm. um, and that I'm learning a great deal about, but obviously want to unpack more. Yeah. I mean, I I think to, to start with the electoral stuff, I mean, I, I guess one thing that, you know, when I started the previous answer by saying there are a couple of different issues here, I, I only ended up really speaking to one of them, you know, which is about sort of 
what do you do about the election? And, you know, and, and whose fault is that? And, you know, but another is that the way you'd framed the first question was about the left and the sort of larger structural problem is, is that we sort of don't have one of those right now. Mm-hmm. You know, we have, we have left media and, you know, there are certainly, you know, activists and organizers who exist and do good work, but it's, it, it's not a power block in American society to, you know, to, to any, any significant extent, right. That, you know, there are, you know, out of the 435 members of the house of representatives, there are a handful who are sort of social Democrats, although they also kind of just structurally given the position that they're in, they, they end up having a kind of ambiguous relationship to, you know, the centrist leadership of the democratic party and not being as oppositional all the time as, you know, as, as people would necessarily like them to be, uh, which is again, a, a sign of that larger, you know, structural weakness. Mm-hmm. Like I remember when people were arguing about kicking Jamal Bowman out of DSA, I think I'm remembering this right, you know, for, uh, for the, the iron dome vote and, you know, this is probably a little bit of an exaggeration, but I always thought that his, you know, if that had actually happened, his response probably would have been, wait, I was kicked out of what? Did, did I join that? Yeah. You know, because it's just not the sort of threat of DSA not supporting somebody. And that's like the largest socialist organization that's existed in generations in the U.S., it's just really not something that's going to keep a politician up at night, right? Like it just doesn't represent a significant power block in our society. And the reason I, w- I really want to stress that is not to be doom and gloom about it. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I think you have to you know, try your hardest to build something and, you know, and, and to sort of build on whatever little you have, but just to emphasize that the problem from my perspective is that it's not a sort of choice like, oh, do we do revolution or not, right? That we're just not in a position, right, where we can do that. I mean, like, there's nothing that the left, to the extent that such a thing even exists in America right now, there's nothing that we can do that's going to result in like the two party system not existing, right? That that that's that's never mind capitalism not existed, right? I mean, that that would be the final boss, right? The two party system is like a pretty entry level level boss, right? Uh, that, uh, <laughs> by comparison to that, right? So, in the debate with David Friedman. Yeah, it's a very, uh, yeah, very strange experience. We'll talk about another time. But they have a, but in that, uh, in that debate, what we were talking about was really like the, the normative issue. Uh, in other words, look, if we could get rid of capitalism, should we? Or, you know, to be optimistic about it, when we can, right? Should we? Right. And of course, I'm an enthusiastic yes to that. And, and also, and also, Obviously, I mean, yes, to get rid of the two-party system too, right? But I mean, that's surely, surely that's like a pretty distant necessary condition, right? You know, along with many, many others, right? To get to the point where you could actually overcome uh, global capital. But yeah, I mean, look, if, you know, I mean, the sort of road from where we are now, which is that we have about six and a half percent or maybe even a little bit less at this point, uh, private sector unionization to overthrowing capitalism and instituting workers control of the means of production is is a depressingly long one and i i I don't think i have any amazing insight to offer about how to um get all the way from from here to there i mean i I think one thing you know the last few years have definitely shown is that things i didn't expect to happen pretty constantly happen which you know you can 
usually bad things in the last few years, but you know, but you know, there's an optimistic side of that too, right? You know, that like what seems possible now might not be what seems possible in 10 years. But yeah, on the normative question, absolutely. I mean, this is, um, you know, I mean, the, the sort of system that Milton and Rose Friedman and their son now are, are celebrating, right, is, uh, is awful. I mean, like, you know, you, you have people who work in Amazon warehouses peeing in bottles because they're afraid they won't make quota. And, you know, their boss owns his own spaceship, you know, that, that like, you know, and, and that's even outside of the most extreme examples, you know, that can be curbed to a certain extent by strong unions and a big welfare state and all of that stuff. There's both the sort of strategic concern, which is as long as you leave, you know, the capitalists, the people, the people who actually own the economically productive assets of society, you know, with their economic power, they'll always find ways to translate that to political power and take away those gains you've already won. And then there's the normative issue, which is just, you know, it's it's fundamentally unreasonable that some people have to spend all day taking orders from people who aren't democratically accountable to them because because they don't have money and other people can spend all day giving orders because they do. And that's long term. That's not something we should just have to live with. So when we think about today versus, let's say, a decade ago, it, it felt like so I, I remember reporting early on the Occupy movement because um, I'm New York based and I, I think I I started reporting on it about day three uh, in the park. And I just, so I just kept going back. I was, ab- I was mesmerized by the entire, by the democratization of the decision-making mostly. That was what I found really fascinating until things sort of fell apart within a couple of months. But for that brief moment in time, I remember thinking, this is interesting because this is different. This isn't something I've experienced before. And I wondered how widespread it could be. And it was at that time, I feel like the intersection of the the Bernie movement and the popularization of the the concept of the ninety nine percent and all of these things sort of coalesced to give a heartbeat to what I think people today, at least looking backwards, might consider the beginning stages of a movement or yeah. a movement in a moment in time. And it felt like we were so ascendant for a little while, uh, post Occupy, coming out of the financial crisis and maybe the lackluster response of the Obama administration. And then the shock therapy that was the fascist turn uh, of Trump. And I think people just being so sidelined and distracted by that, that it, it took the movement more off path than I think we even realized at the time. So, okay, how come the Trump administration wasn't the impetus to put that back on the rails was it really just the the DNC circling the proverbial wagons to to prevent the Bernie movement and to to sort of kill it in the crib there? Or I mean, you know, what was that moment in your mind now that you have a few years to kind of look back on it to say that okay, this is when the wind really came out of what we would consider the movement? Yeah, I guess I don't know that it was necessarily because I actually I actually think the wind really came out a few years later than than Trump coming in. I mean, if anything, from my perspective, it was, you know, windiest around like (laughs) 2017, right? That's, uh, you know, that that's the time that I I was feeling the most powerful gusts, uh, certainly. Uh, So, you know, like Occupy, you know, I think had a million problems that, you know, you kind of gestured at a little bit in the way you set it up. But, you know, the thing that was, you know, most significant about it is that, even though a very small 
number of people really really like when you think back to it and add it all up were actually uh participating and especially in those sort of ultra democratic meetings and all that i mean like you know you need a lot of time right there's a reason that the athenians had had slaves uh to you know to free up citizens to spend all day in the assembly uh, mm-hmm. but even so I think what was significant about it was just that it was like a high profile thing that captured a lot of public consciousness that had these slogans about the 99% and the 1% and that really sort of put um, class in however incohate a way on people's radar and, and as like, you know, in the center of discussion in, uh, in the United States in a way that it just hadn't been in living memory and, and definitely the first Bernie campaign, you know, picked up on that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first Bernie campaign, I mean, in a sense was the closest, you know, that anything like to actually, you know, I mean, he won 22 States uh, that, uh, that that's, that's remarkable. But I will say that when you're thinking about the movement, and I think we do need to make a distinction here between the movement and like the public at large, because I think they had very different reactions to Trump coming to office. You know, when you're thinking about the sort of Bernie-ish movement, that actually picked up steam after Trump was elected. I mean, like I can I can just say from my per- particular anecdotal data point, you know, I was living in central New Jersey at that point. I was uh, very involved in central New Jersey DSA back then, and I went you know, through you know, most of 2016, I was, you know, going to a lot of meetings where it's the same six people looking at each other around the table. And then in like December 2016, it was like uh, 50 people, right? 60 people, you know, like crowded in like the basement of a union hall. And I think that's actually pretty typical uh, from, from what I can tell. I think that, I think that there is like a segment of people who the conclusion they drew from the whole experience of 2016 was, oh, Mainstream liberalism showed that it couldn't defeat, you know, right populism. So what we need is some kind of left populism to defeat it. And like, look, Bernie came so close, right? That's a, there's proof of concept there. Right. And so you did have like people flooding into DSA, for example, and you did have two years into uh, the Trump administration, you had those, those first few squad members being elected to Congress. And, and there was actually a lot of wind at the, at the back of the second uh, Bernie run originally, right? That the, that, I mean, you know, he, he, sure. he won all three of the first three States, right? Mm-hmm. Like in, in Nevada, especially, right? Like he actually got an, an outright, you know, majority in a, in a crowded field and had a very like multiracial voting base, got to see a little bit. I mean, I, I spent a day just before the primary, you know, like canvassing cab drivers of the Vegas strip to support him. But I think what we really saw, I think, is that, yeah, look, there's a certain segment of people who drew the conclusions I was just talking about from the experience of 2016, but it's not what most Americans drew from from 2016, right? Like most people who are like broadly liberal, I think drew the conclusion, oh no, this this is a catastrophe, um, you know, especially when COVID, you know, especially the combination of COVID and what they perceived as like awful mismanagement of COVID by Trump and the George Floyd protests and riots. And it's like, okay, everybody's sick. Everything's on fire. We just, <laughs> we just need to get back to normal. Right. And right. I, and I think that longing to get back to normal, you know, more than anything, like, look, I mean, people in, in, except for South Carolina, uh, where there's like a, 
unusually conservative Democratic electorate, which is why they're going first now. Mm-hmm. Other than that, uh, all the states that Biden won uh, when it was still a competitive race, the exit polls, Democratic voters said they they supported Medicare for all. Right. And, you of know, course, right. Bernie is Mr. Medicare for all. And Biden, you know, said he'd veto it at one point. Uh, and, you know, certainly is the only candidate, only centrist who wasn't making any effort to have it both ways or do some sort of like nine dimensional like, oh, I'm going to do Medicare for all who wanted or anything like that. Uh, he was just, you know, frankly, not in favor of it. So the question is, is why? And I, I think that it's like, yeah, most normie Dem voters Sure. Like they like the idea of Medicare for all. I don't think they take it very seriously. Like they, they don't think it's going to happen, but like they'd want it, right? They'd be in favor of it if they did think it was going to happen. But, you know, they weren't voting based on that because like that sounds like a, fa- you know, that sounds like a fantasy. Like their whole experience of politics is that, you know, politicians promise that they're going to do good things. They just don't, you know, it just never seems to happen. You know, I think there is this like really bone deep kind of capitalist realism there. So what are people voting on? They're voting on who do they think is going to be a better candidate to take out Trump? And, you know, which, you know, of course, we all thought was Bernie. But I think that was that wasn't the main that wasn't the perception that most people had. And so I think that was incredibly demoralizing the the loss of that second Bernie campaign. Um, And, you know, I I think demoralizing to an extent that's become more obvious over the last uh, the last few years. Because at the time, I have to say, I, I was sort of like, okay, this is a setback. That's awful, right? But like, you know, things are still so much better than they used to be, right? Like there's, there's, there's such a strong, there's such a more significant left presence than there used to be, right? Let's see what happens in a couple of years. And and I think looking back on it, that that was, you know, that was a little, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel... I feel a little bit like one of those Japanese soldiers who is like, you know, still in a cave in the South Pacific and, you know, the 1960s, uh, you know, that like, you know, not realizing that the war was over. Right. That, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that, like, you know, left politics is over. It just means that, like, the sort of particular opening that we saw there. Right. I I, I think, you know, I think there was a very severe defeat, you know, that happened in, in 2020. And like, I guess my last thought about this is just that part of why it was such a defeat and part of why it was so demoralizing is that like those Bernie campaigns had a kind of gravitational force to them that anybody who had leftish views, who had any kind of instinct for like participating in real world politics, you know, and and not just, you know, criticizing for the sidelines was like really drawn to that. And so like a lot of people were, you know, I don't know, you think about like, Adolf Reed and Cornell West, you know, used to hate each other and, you know, they, they, they kind of came together, you know, over that, right? Like that's, you know, the, everybody involved in that Crystal Kyle and Brie conversation you were saying, right? They, they, they were all together over that, right? That, um, mm-hmm. and lots of people who maybe, who were maybe on the sort of, yeah, you should vote less evil, you know, uh, side of some of the uh, tactical issues we were talking about earlier. Lots of people who'd, like always voted for the Green Party, you know, we're, we're, we're together over that because, because yeah, it, it just had this gravitational force that pulled in everybody. And since then, there really hasn't been anything that's, that's, that's had that effect, right? There, there, there hasn't been anything that's been like, oh, this is, um, you know, I mean, there's certainly been things that have happened that leftists have cared a lot about, right? But, uh, but there hasn't been anything that's like, 
oh, this is the thing that's going to sort of overwhelmingly uh, draw in people to like, this is the project, right, to, uh, to, to focus on. And certainly not like something that where the left, such as it is, is is on the offensive, right? Like like it was with the the Bernie campaign. I mean, you get, you know, you can get a zillion people to go into the street, you know, quite rightly to to protest the atrocities in Gaza, you know. But like the idea of like, oh, here's like a project that we're all doing together to like actually try to move the needle forward and not just like object to whatever the most recent horrific things that have happened. There right, really hasn't right. been anything like that. So let's talk about how movements do coalesce outside of responding to events and, and tragedies. And in in the series that, that we did over the summer, and, and this is where I'm very grateful that I can just ask the person that I would, that I was probably reading at the time. <laughs> One of the things that occurred to me mm. um, was I didn't really understand the fracture among working class movements throughout history. So even going back to, I would guess, the splinter of craft and trade unions in in Western economies in Europe in the 1800s through to the socialist movement with, uh, and, and I guess the splinter between like Gompers and Debs. Mm-hmm. And this seems to be a very repetitive through history is that in periods of decline, when it makes the most sense for the so-called working class, and I'm not really sure that I have a proper understanding or identity of what that even means anymore. Okay, yeah. But the, the working class as a, as a concept coming together during these depressive periods to fight back against uh, capitalist and corporate interests, and yet there still seems to be a fundamental difference in worldview between the the Bakunin Proudhon sort of wing of things versus the the Marx Marxian view that we're going to have to use and and align with with the labor movement with the union movement rather in order to be able to uh, you know effectively take over the system from within if we're ultimately going to uh, have the transition between capitalism and socialism so it seems to me that that fundamental fracture has actually never been healed that that's something that's been persistent in socialist and democratic socialist movements throughout history where there's never been full alignment with labor. And yet the concept that we always seem to return to when whenever we're thinking about, okay, we need to reestablish what the left means and progressive values will be and begin and end with the working class, so to speak. But the working class is itself not a monolith. So how do we reconcile that from a historical perspective? Have you ever seen examples through history where certain cultures got it right? Right. So, th- so I think I heard a few things in there. One of them was about like what we even mean, maybe when we're talking about the working class. I, I, I think. Sure. Um, I mean, I think my, you know, sort of boring answer to that would be uh, that the working class is the set of people who uh, don't own means of production sufficient to to make a living off of that. And, and thus have, you know, have to rent out their working hours to, uh, to a capitalist, right? That's what the working class is. The, you know, I, I think maybe the wrinkle that might get closer to what you're actually asking about is that what I've just defined is, uh, what Marx would call, you know, the working class is a class in itself. But then the sort of trick is, well, how to make that a class for itself. Cause like, look, you could be a member of the working class as I've just defined it. Which you know, by the way, doesn't you know have to 
uh, have a particular kind of job or, you know, or work in manufacturing or whatever to, you know, to fit that definition. I mean, anybody, you know, anybody who's a, you know, dependent on wage labor to make their living and doesn't run the place, you know, can't hire and fire their people, right, is going to, to fall, to fall within that. But like, of course, you could be a member of the working class in that sense without seeing yourself as a member of the working class sure. or, or, or certainly acting politically or even at the workplace in ways that reflect, you know, that you, you see yourself that way, right? I mean, there are, yep. you know, you drive several hours north of here and you'll find an ocean of people who have like IT sector, you know, uh, uh, wage, wage labor who are like, I don't know, a lot of them are libertarians. They're, they're sort of still. You know they hate the uh, they hate the idea of unions. You know, uh, like uh, you know, there's not. You know, I mean, I don't know, maybe fewer, but I mean, I'll I'll bet you could still find a bunch, right? So uh, that's uh, so yeah, and, and I mean that's that's incredibly hard, right? Like how to how to get people to identify that way and kind of act on that that basis, right? You know, I mean that that's kind of the whole problem, right, of of socialist politics, because because if you know if everybody. I mean, this is like one way of seeing this in Marxist terms is, all right, so two famous one-liners from Marx. Uh, one of them is that the emancipation of the working class is the act of the working class. In other words, that you know nobody can do it for the working class. It has to do it for itself. The other is that the ruling ideas of every era are the, are the ideas of the ruling class. And, you know, and, and those jangle against each other in an uncomfortable way, right? Like therein kind of lies the problem. And, you know, how do you, how do you sort of convince, you know, workers to sort of see themselves in that light and act in that light and the obstacles to that, I should say, you know, I, I don't want to portray it as if it's just sort of uh, ideological, right? That people were tricked, um, that there, there's also structural obstacles to that. I just was planning on this, but since the book is right next to me as I'm talking, right? There's the, uh, the class matrix by uh, Vivek Chibber. Uh, if you read that, right, you know, he, he goes into this in depth, right? There are lots of rational reasons why people don't sort of seek out collective organization that it's, it's just, it's risky on an individual level, right? You know, you're often better off pursuing, you know, more individualistic strategies for, you know, making the best of things. Well, I think that was the big lesson from the Clinton era, which I would consider to be sort of the the peak of the neoliberal era where they tried to actually exercise a lot of the the philosophical elements of what we would consider neoliberalism in in policy practice and in the alignment of the new Democrats with what um, the contract for America was trying to accomplish. And and I think what the new Democrats discovered was that uh, not everybody is either hardwired or even wants to be an entrepreneur, some mo- that most people are looking for fairness. They're looking for stability. They're looking for, you know, the highest probable outcome for their the work that they're doing. And and then that security and safety net that they are going to have health care, that they're not going to be one paycheck away from being decimated. That to me was the big lesson out of the Clinton years where, you know, they tried to impose that that new Democrat uh. philosophy, which was really just neoliberalism in disguise. Or, you know, maybe not much of a disguise at that point. Uh, you know, <laughs> I think the disguise got, you know, uh, I think there was a sort of unabashed neoliberalism there that it's like now, you know, we can question how much the content has really changed, right? You know, but but I think the democratic messaging is at least more ambiguous now. I think maybe because, you know, some of what you're talking about, you know, that they a lot of that stuff got very unpopular. But um, 
but yeah, look, uh, people do want security. There are lots of people who, I mean, you know, lots of people do want to be entrepreneurs. Most of them can't, but like, you know, lots of people don't, right. You know, that, uh, mm-hmm. And so there are definitely openings there for, you know, for, for collective action, but, but it is, it is really a serious problem, right? You know, that you, you need to, to show people that they're going to get something out of it, you know, sort of proof of concept that, I mean, certainly with the labor movement, you know, we, you know, I mean, we have, we've just had this big upsurge in strike activity, but also actual union density, you know, I think as Nathan pointed out in that conversation, right. You know, declined. Says, yeah. has actually declined even more. Uh, so a lot of, you know, a lot of this stuff is, I mean, it's sort of, it's maybe declined so much that it helps explain why there's this sort of turn toward, towards a little bit more militancy now, but. Um, it's also humbling when you look at the, uh, the annual reports from all of the big yeah. automakers and the, the profits that they stacked up in excess of what they did the year before. And even in, as they write in their annual reports, in spite of union actions, we did, we crushed it is basically what they were saying. Yeah, so, I mean, that is sort of like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it was enough that they, they did, they did get a lot, you know, for the stand up strike, but still, yeah, no, totally. Yeah. Right. So that's a serious problem. And, and it's, and it's like, again, it's one that I don't, I, I don't want to pretend to have some like great magical solution to, right. I think that, on both fronts, on the workplace and, you know, and, and in, in political action, right. You know, that you have similar problems with the fact that it's, it's very hard to reverse that kind of spiral of, of, of decline and, and demoralization, right. You know, you, mm-hmm. you need to get some wins. It's very hard to overcome this sort of like a lot of, um, well-earned distrust of the idea that things are going to get any better. You know, through uh, through through collective action uh, that a lot of a lot of people have, and that's that's kind of the problem right now. But but I guess I would just say my my big note of caution because in, in your initial question you brought up all this stuff about Proudhon and Bakunin and all of that, and 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 I, I would just say that like there, I think there's this persistent temptation both from people who, I mean, most from people who actually explicitly understand themselves to be in this tradition. Uh, but also for people who maybe don't have that understanding exactly, but are just kind of trying to figure stuff out in the moment and, uh, don't necessarily know a lot about the history of, of past attempts to, uh, who think that, oh, well, look, trying to take over the existing economic and political machine isn't going well. So I know Mm -hmm. what we'll do, right? We'll, we'll secede and form our own thing. Right. Like, like, you know, you know, that this is like the way that people who are, again, either conscious anarchists or sort of, you know, unconsciously replicated some of this stuff will sort of use the word, the phrase uh, dual power, which meant something specific in Russia in 1917. That's really nothing to do with what they're talking about. But like what they mean is like building up alternative institutions outside of the, the, uh, the existing society that you know they hope will sort of one day be become in competition uh with 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 those that you know we'll we'll build our own you know you know we're not going to try to sort of build up working class power within existing workplaces we're going to build up our own you know co-ops and communes and you know uh we'll build our own little electricity grid and all this stuff but if we take Proudhon without the secessionist attitude and think about the rise of worker co-ops yeah. Uh, and the efficacy of worker co-ops, the, the one thing that I, I felt when I was reading Proudhon that he understood about the burgeoning capitalist system was that 
that had to also be paired with the right regulatory environment and a strong central bank that could help facilitate that. And I think that actually kind of gets into what modern movements might look like and and even the debate that you were having with uh, Friedman about the structural impediments that we put in, in place to prevent even those type of experiments from really taking off to, to achieve the levels of, a, of a, say, a Mondragon. But, you know, can you speak to some of those structural impediments here? Because I think, you know, Friedman felt in his discussion with you that he was sort of finding some momentum, though missing the plot, that, uh, well, if, if co-ops are all that, they would be everywhere here. And uh, yeah, yeah. There, there's your evidence that it doesn't work. So, but and what, not listening to the arguments about the structural barriers, can you sort of illuminate that as we talk about movements that might be among the working class that have been proven to be successful in other mature economies? Sure. Uh, so I, I would say that it's like, and, and I guess maybe tying together both this and what we were talking about with the previous question that, look, one of the things that frustrates me the most when leftists start talking about strategy is that they so many of them don't do it comparatively, right? They're, they're trying to, they're trying to have an argument about whether to pursue strategy A or strategy B and their argument will proceed. Strategy A has all these problems and it hasn't been working. Therefore let's do strategy B and, mm. and it often misses. Well, hold on. Are the obstacles faced by strategy B actually less than the obstacles faced by strategy A? Or are they more, right? I mean, we have to figure that out to, you know, to even make this, you know, this argument make sense. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I think those kinds of secessionist attempts have been continuously tried for about as long as capitalism has existed, maybe even a little bit before, depending on how exactly you, uh, you know, you demarcate it, right? You know, go back to like the diggers of the English uh, Revolution in the 1600s. I was going to say New Harmony, but okay. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, way before New Harmony, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it's it's not like, you know, and, and you face all sorts of obstacles, like for one thing, that the state doesn't go away just because you choose to ignore it, right? I mean, that would be the issue. <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, but then also more relevantly, we start thinking about things like New Harmony, uh, or, or even just sort of day-to-day attempts at building worker co-ops right now, um, just structural features of, of a capitalist economy. So one thing that's very striking is, look, the idea of, of workers pulling together resources and, you know, and like starting a cooperative factory or something is, is not unusual. It's not like this was like first suggested in like a Richard Wolf lecture on YouTube uh, that the uh, <laughs> this is you know this is like you you read like Marx's address inaugural address to the first international and he's talking about cooperative factory uh, attempts and by the way in that address he's not poo pooing it right like he actually he actually says there's great value in this because it's it proves that it's possible. Right to mm-hmm. uh, to run a factory efficiently without bosses, essentially. Right, you know that that's his point, and you know, and, and there's there's great there's great value in that, right? But the one thing he I think rightly doesn't think is that oh well, we just need to build up those efforts and eventually, right? You know, we'll we'll sort of outcompete the capitalists and then we'll have socialism, you know, emerging from within the rules of the free market. And why not? Okay, so uh, I think there are a bunch of reasons why not. One of the biggest ones that goes back to your point about Proudhon and the, I mean, I think it's a little bit unclear in Proudhon's case when he talks about bank, whether, you know, like some sort of people's bank, right? Like, like who he's actually imagining sponsoring this, but, uh, 
but you know, but the core of the idea, right. You know, like, like, you know, why banking is really important, right. In thinking about, you know, transition to socialism is that, you know, if you think about financing mechanisms, right. For cooperatives, right. Like you can have like one thing that you sort of almost definitionally can't do, right. Is finance it by selling stock ownership because, right. If you've, you know, if you're rewarding investors with ongoing ownership shares, right, then to the extent that you've done that, you are to that extent no longer a cooperative, right? So, right. uh, so that's like a huge financing mechanism that you've, you've lost, uh, right off the bat. Uh, there are also structural advantages that traditional firms have over cooperative firms in terms of expansion, uh, that, uh, it's, it's way easier, like, you know, actually existing co-ops, they don't, Actually, from the evidence that we have, it's, you know, it's understudied, but like for the evidence that we have, you know, they don't seem to like go out of business at a, uh, at, at a higher rate, you know, than other, uh, other kinds of firms, but they do seem to expand more slowly, which makes a lot of sense because sure. if you have a traditional firm where the workers don't get a vote in, uh, in the decision making, then it's very easy to prioritize expansion over compensation for, uh, for people who are, already working for you. That's, that's pretty straightforward why that would be the case. Right. And why it would be. Yeah, and I think, I think people conflate that with the lack, the, the slow expansion with also the lack of innovation, which, you know, yeah. would be vital for uh, a, certainly a capitalist economic system. Uh, but I don't think that those two are the same thing. No, it, no, definitely. And, and, you know, whatever, I mean, innovation is vital to, you know, any thriving economic system, but but no, I I don't think those are the same thing, right? I think that I think that like coming up with new stuff and like opening, you know, new locations are just different things, you know, straightforwardly. And you know, if we really want to talk about innovation, I think it's also important to recognize that like certainly okay, we we do want to make a distinction between like inventing new technology and and sort of seeing the applications of that technology to, you know, filling consumer needs, right? Those are two different things. Yeah. But on the first one, at least, it is truly remarkable, right? How much of that uh, has, uh, how much of that happens within the public sector, you know, that like actually really when you get right down to it, it's, it's kind of remarkable how little the private sector is actually, uh, is actually doing to that, right? So there's, a book by a woman with a Italian name that I cannot remember right now. I feel bad uh, called uh, the entrepreneurial state where she, she talks about this. And if you see her give uh, like talks about, it, it's like the only Ted talk that I recommend people watch uh, is, uh, is hers about this. She does this thing where she talks about, you know, the iPhone and, you know, this is uh, going to take everything in this phone, right. You know, that like actually makes it a smartphone and not a dumb phone. The internet itself, mm -hmm. global positioning system, uh, the touchscreen technology, uh, every single one of these things uh, was, uh, was, was developed by people working in the public sector, often in the defense department. But I mean, like, I, I don't think there's anything magical about that, that we need to have it be linked to killing people in order to, in, in order to do it. Right. So, so. Uh, hey, ben, are you suggesting that centralized planning can, can actually Elicit innovative concepts. Yeah, I, I I think that the I think the evidence is is, is pretty clear on that, right? That's uh, I mean, I, you know, anybody watched? Uh, I mean, God, you know, to stick with military industrial complex examples, right? 
you know, anybody who watched Oppenheimer last year will notice that they weren't working in the, you know, Manhattan startup, you know, that was, <laughs> uh, that was, uh, that was the, the public sector. So in fact, I actually think, I actually think that's one of the things that, you know, there are things that we, there are things that we don't really know how to do with central, uh, centralized planning, but that is actually something that we, we do know how to do with centralized planning. Centralized planning is pretty good at that. Um, yep. And, you know, and then to the extent that you, you know, like you, you take the things that centralized planning uh, isn't very good at, which are lining up production with fine-grained uh, consumer preferences, right? So like uh, Bhaskar Sankara's book, The Socialist Manifesto, in the first chapter of that, which, you know, even if you don't read the whole book, I'd recommend people read that first chapter. It's called A Day in the Life of a Socialist Citizen, and it sort of tries to vividly imagine, right, you know, uh, what, a, what a better uh, society would look like. And in the course of that discussion, uh, he says, I don't think this line's original to him, but I don't remember who he's quoting. Uh, but, you know, he has this line about how the Soviet economy, the problem with like Soviet economic planning, or one of them, right, was that it was uh, all thumbs and no fingers, right? That it was by which it means it was like very good at churning out just immense numbers of tractors and tanks mm-hmm. to, you know, with, and, you know, thank God for it, or, you know, Hitler might have won the war, but it was, it was very bad at, coordinating what was in the shelves in the grocery stores right. uh, with what Soviet citizens actually wanted, which, you know, there's a way that you can kind of roll your eyes at that and sort of, you know, do like radical posturing. It's like, oh yeah, okay, sorry, we don't have 200 different kinds of toothpaste, but I actually think that was a pretty serious problem as experienced by people who lived in those societies. Right, right. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah. you know, they, they certainly experienced it as such. And it's yet, like, I don't need 10 types of toothpaste, but I would like more than garbanzo beans. If that's at all possible, that would be great. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I think that you can, you know, square the circle here. I think you could say, look, absolutely FMF on the core point, right? That they, that like, we don't need capitalism for uh, for any of this stuff that you know there are in fact lots of things that the public sector can do that you know you can you know there are other examples besides the Soviet Union right you know you can you can look around the world at you know even what's happened under capitalism under advanced social democracies where different sectors of the economy have been taken under public ownership and you know we've we've shown that there's good results you know that you don't actually need private sector competition to you know, I find a lot of people that argue against the just the larger concept of socialism believe believe that socialism or or any of the tendencies of it reflect an absence of markets, which is not the case. It's it's you can build out a market based system, but have socialist tendencies in your not only your political expressions but through your economic expressions. But uh, but that idea that markets are somehow the intellectual property of capitalism exclusive, uh, exclusively, I think, is one of the things that people. At least even my idea going into it and and doing research over the last few years is like I just figured that was the purview of the capitalist structure. But it's not. I mean, a market based system is 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 more fundamental to that. And it's how it's how we move goods and people and services throughout the world. Yeah. I, I mean, look, capitalism is something that's existed for a few hundred years. You know, markets have existed in one form or another uh, for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. So the existence of markets is certainly a necessary condition for the existence of capitalism, but it's not a sufficient one. Right. And I do think that there's a case that you could make that like, if you can kind of 
figure out these logistical problems that we've been talking about, about the things that centralized planning is currently not good at, right? Then, um, then yeah, I mean, look, maybe a completely marketless form of socialism would be um, like the most egalitarian and, you know, desirable outcome. I'm totally open to that, right? But I, I, I also, you know, because I'm interested in convincing people that socialism is possible, uh, I, I don't want to just help myself to the assumption that, you know, we're going to get the technological singularity first. And so, you know, <laughs> supercomputers will deliver us, you know, uh, you know, fully automated luxury communism. We just don't need to worry about it. Uh, or, you know, that there's going to be some, you know, great spiritual shift in human nature or any of that stuff. Right. You know, that they have. Um, I, I think if you're just not helping yourself to any of those assumptions, you're sort of being like maximally realistic about what's currently technologically or psychologically possible. Okay, look, we know that we don't need markets to have a good healthcare system. We know that we don't need markets to have a good education system, et cetera. Right. These are all places where I think totally marketless economic planning makes perfect sense right now. And, you know, it is is not, you know, I mean, like whatever. You could find you could find plenty of places where, you know, where those things are, you know, having good effects right now. Mm-hmm. Then you know when um, you know, and I do have the traditional socialist view that it's very important that at least the commanding heights of the economy be under the control of the the big collective, right? All of us, because that's the stuff that you know has the most effect on everybody uh, who uh, who lives in a society. You know, so that that does mean, for example, right, that uh, not just the you know the sort of things that make sense to provide as decommodified public services that I just laid out, but also Energy resources, for example, uh, transportation, I would add broadband now. Mm-hmm. And crucially, going back to what you were saying earlier about Perdon, banking, uh, because then I think. And I think I alluded to his concept as closer to central banking when it's really, I, it would be more akin to what we would consider credit unions today. So I think I sort of mischaracterized that a little bit. But the, the point being that access to and a more egalitarian access to capital that could be spread among and then staying within the communities was, was yeah. closer to his idea, I think. Totally. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I think there is a, there is a core, there is a core insight there in Perdon. I just think that, you know, I just, yeah, I think you do need the the state, right. Uh, that again, the sort of biggest, we needs to, you know, like the, the thing that has the most control over the overall flow of, uh, of resources in our society uh, has to be under the control of that. And then, you know, if you do still need a market sector for the sake of the things that you need fingers for, uh, then I would I would say there's no reason it can't at least be a market sector of uh, worker-owned firms, you know, so you can get, like, people can read, uh, I already mentioned the first chapter of Bhaskar's book, or for a, like, slightly kind of wonkier technical deep dive on this, uh, Mike Beggs is an article from Catalyst called uh, Markets and Workplace Under Democratic Socialism. It was reprinted in Jacobin. I do not remember what it was called when it was reprinted Beggs? in Jacobin. Yeah, Beggs, B-E-G-G-S. Or for a somewhat similar idea, there's a book from like the early 2000s by maybe like 2001 or two or something by David Schweikart uh, called After Capital yeah. that I think is also, you know, like very similar idea, right? Mm-hmm. That, um, that you know, you could you could have essentially, right, to get around these structural problems that uh, that there are, you know, it's a lot easier under the rules of markets as they're currently structured. It's a lot easier to have a worker cooperative coffee shop 
than like a worker cooperative foundry, right? That's yep. uh, the yep. actual like physical capital is in some sectors of the economy incredibly expensive. Uh, and if- and nowadays in all sectors of the economy, truly, I mean, yeah, the, bar- yeah. I think the barrier to entry right now is is significant. Um, totally. yeah, we came we came out of this zero interest rate environment when you and I, it's so funny because the coming out of the zero interest rate environment showed a few things. Number one is it made it harder for startup uh, yeah. capital, entrepreneurial capital to, to actually uh, to work its way through for that coffee shop or somebody that has the, the small local retail idea. But it also exposed a lot of the private equity market and a lot of the the bigger capitalist enterprises that were riding high on this, you know, low to no interest rate environment or the banking institutions that were, you know, essentially engaging in legal arbitrage in, you know, having rates that were, you know, pinned below what they could get back from uh, treasuries. And so it sort of gave this idea that uh, that the capitalist class was that they could, they were just on this ultimate winning streak. They couldn't lose. They were untouchable. They were omniscient. And and then now they've kind of been exposed for how difficult this environment is. And it's sort of, so I see this as it, this should be one of those moments in a high interest rate and high inflationary environment. This should be one of those moments where it exposes the capitalist structure to such a degree that a lot of the, uh, the underclasses begin to say, wait a minute, you, you weren't right about this or my job isn't as secure and I don't like living these slave wages because household debt is now at the highest point it's ever been in history, period, end of story. And people are feeling that squeeze, which I think is what we're seeing reflected, obviously, in in the poll polling data. A lot of it might be, yes, I feel terrible about Gaza. Yes, I feel terrible about this this event or something that's happening on the ground. But I think what people are really feeling is squeezed, that economic pressure that comes from these these moments where all of the wrong things accelerate through the economy and expose just how fragile we all are. And I, and I mean to take you off. Sure. I, I, I wanted to actually build on something that you had said before when we were talking about innovation and coming out of, of certain cycles, but also the idea of what could work here. So again, you know, bridging the gap of we know what the structural impediments are to us building out systems like Mondragon here that would be wildly successful and super competitive with the capitalistic structure. I've read a lot of Schumpeter, who's yeah. dense, but I, I think artful in the way he explains a lot of things. And one of the things that that stuck with me was he was talking about, I, I think there's a reading of Schumpeter that that actually demonstrates that he is more aligned with Marx in that he believed that socialism was the the logical extension. I think he was just coming about it in a more modern way. But one of the things that he was suggesting at the time was, you know, Americans, for example, would like to think that we could live under some sort of uh, Swedish style Uh. social democracy. But in order to actually effectuate that, you would have to import Swedes into the United States and have them run everything because we are so culturally Mm. obstinate. Because we have this sort of idea that we're still in this frontier mindset, this this rugged individualist mindset, no matter how much we we actually just want wages and, and a fair shake at things, we still believe ourselves to sort of be wrapped up in this frontier mindset. And so he said that culturally, it would be impossible to adopt any sort of model that you would see outside the United States working here because we're just different. Our economy is different. We're hardwired differently. There are cultural aspects to our identity that do not lend themselves to that sort of collectivist ideal. And so we're going to have to think about something new. 
And, and honestly, Ben, that really resonated with me because I think when you just have normal conversations with people mm. in the street, they don't they don't get hung up in definitions or or in the history of things. They want to be left the fuck alone. They want to be able to, you know, pay their bills, do great stuff on the weekends, not be, you know, bothered or burdened by too many bureaucratic items. And that they do sort of have this cultural sense that we are, you know, for lack of a better term, we're exceptional. We're, you know, we're Americans. So when you conceive of these things in the future, when you set it against the cultural landscape in the United States, what areas of the economy in particular do you think would be palatable to the wider American public in a way that we could kind of coalesce around these ideas? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think that the Bernie movement was was correct in thinking that that healthcare is something that, you know, is very ripe target, right? That it mm-hmm. it, it takes up a bunch of the economy. Uh, so it's like a it that would be like extremely significant if it happened. And, you know, that's I mean, part of the reason why it's so hard to make it happen, right? There'd definitely be a lot of resistance from capital, but also if you're, you know, whatever sort of cultural story you want to tell about America that you think makes people especially, you know, resistant to socialism, I'll, you know, the one thing I'll say about that is that I'd, I'll note that Americans aren't too culturally hardwired to accept Medicare, you know, when they, they turn 65, right? You know, everybody yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, or pretty, open up their mailbox and get the mail or, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Right? Examples. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and in fact, my God, I mean, the mailbox, this is, you know, consistently uh, you do you do polls of sort of how people feel about different, you know, different branches of the government and uh, the Postal Service is like the most popular, you know, more than the military, more than anything. Right. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. so, uh, you know, what I would think for that is that, look, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, I don't you know, I'm not going to go so far as to deny that there's a bigger libertarian streak in American culture that, you know, as it currently exists, that there is in many other cultures, we could argue about the causality, right? You know, but they, that, mm. you know, I, I'm not going to deny that that's true. But I would also note that uh, when people can see that these things are improving their lives, uh, they, they, they tend to, to want to, uh, to keep them, right? You know, sometimes even no matter how confused they are about it, right? Like that notorious sign from like the the anti Obama like you know town hall early Tea Party stuff, where the the woman had the sign about you know keep your government hands off my social security. Mm-hmm. That's um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like yeah. you know people can mm-hmm. you even said earlier, right? You know, there is a widespread desire for certain kinds of economic security, and you know that. Uh, and, you know, I, and, and I think, again, when people can see that things improve their lives in practice, it's, you know, it's easier to, you know, they're, they're, they are, in fact, going to support them, right? You know, whatever kind of libertarian streak, you know, exists in the American culture and, you know, again, whatever the causality is for it, like it's, it's not enough that, you know, that the people aren't going to, you know, like the idea of getting health care. In fact, right now, right, the idea of, of Medicare for all polls well i mean i don't th- i don't think most people are like optimistic that it's going to happen so I, I don't think they're like mad that it's not happening because i don't think they ever thought it was going to but like if you just ask them as an abstract proposition would you like this uh, they'll right. uh, they'll they'll say yes right and and i think similarly there's even a there's a book i remember called uh it's like the myth or the myths of mondragon that somebody who's like 
you know, I mean, they're like a leftist, the author, but they're like somewhat critical of, you know, certain things about it and, you know, how it's perceived and everything. But there's also, to my mind, right, the most telling part of the book is there's a conversation with, with some Mondragon workers, like going through their various complaints. And they're like, oh, so would you consider like quitting and getting a job at a private company? Like, oh, hell no. Why would I, why would I do that? Right. That's like, right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give up on my share and my vote. Right. You know, that's, uh, by the way, it was killing me, it killing me in the, uh, in the debate with Friedman, how he kept calling it Mondragon. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, this is so purposeful. God, stop it. Yeah, I don't, I, I wouldn't, I don't even know if it was on purpose or not, but yeah, that's uh, <laughs> like, but it's like, look, I, I think, I think once even with just regular unions, right? I mean, something that, you know, that just doesn't happen is that a workplace is unionized and you get a contract and then two years later without the employer having to do anything. There's just like a vote to decertify because people decide they'd prefer more flexible working conditions or whatever, right? Like mm-hmm. that's like just not a thing that happens, right? That, uh, that you know, <laughs> right. once you give people a taste of having a little bit of power on the job uh, and a little bit of extra security that comes out of that, right? They like it. They want more of it, right? So it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm under no illusions that, you know, a majority of Americans are ready to, you know, sign up with all the insane commie shit I just said a few minutes ago. <laughs> uh, but 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 I do think I do think a majority of Americans would be on board with a social contract that was somewhat more tilted towards the interests of working people than we have right now and that did involve more, you know, like did involve at least a few more social services, you know, more protections for labor, etc. And I think once that's been achieved, Right. You know, I, I think that successes can build on each other and I don't want to be rosy about this. I think it's a incredibly long road full of, you know, places that you could fall off the cliff. Right. But mm-hmm. um, but I, I do think a certain road opens up once you, you know, once you've got some points on the board. I, I just wonder, though, you know, what I guess maybe I'm not confused by it, but I'm, I'm more frustrated by it is how is why we don't have greater antipathy toward corporations in general. Like I I have a weird relationship with music because my parents growing up subjected me to country music. So we're talking about, you know, like 1970s country music. Um, But this is the era of Norma Ray. And this is the era of take this job and shove it. And this is a, you know, a time I think that is sort of the last vestiges of rural America giving the finger, not just to coastal elitists, but to the man. Fuck the man, fuck the corporation. You know, this is my job and I want to fight for those rights. And we lost that somewhere al- along the way, presumably in the Reagan 80s and then with, you know, with the height of the neoliberalism movement. But it, I think it still frustrates me that we haven't been able to take at least that narrative back and shift the animus that we feel toward, OK, if you don't want to put it at the two party duopoly, at least let's let's get back on the same page that the corporations are the bad guys, right? And and we we have trouble getting there, and that's frustrating to me. Yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, I I don't know. I also think that the probably in the specific case of country music, I think that there's probably some economic facts about the you know the way that distribution has changed you know since since the seventies that um, probably lend themselves towards more homogenized products. Mm-hmm. Than you know the sort of stuff that was coming out in the outlaw era, 
But yeah, although on the other, I don't know. I mean, look, what, what I was thinking about as you were saying that was, you know, the much discussed uh, late last year viral hit, uh, Rich Men North of Richmond, which uh, has some very right wing lyrics in it, right? Yep. But there's an opening. Like, there's there, an opening. Yeah, yeah, there's some stuff in there about, I mean, look, the, the title is about Rich Men. The, uh, the, the, you know, the, the early lyrics are about, you know, working overtime hours for bullshit pay. Like, you know, there, there's, there's definitely like, I, I, you know, I mean, I think that guy's, you know, just kind of confused and a little all over the place. Right. But like, I think that both, you know, the author and anybody nodded along, you know, when they, when they hear those, those lyrics, right. I mean, there's, there's stuff. Sure. They're, they're still going outside and they're mowing down Bud Light cans with an AK 47. I know we, sure, we have some other. Sure. Sure. <laughs> But, you know, which, I mean, whatever, right? That's fine. Yeah. Uh, like, I'm not, you know, uh, I don't, you know, just, you know, practice gun safety and I have no objection to any of that. But, like, I have a, uh, but, uh, but I don't, but, like, that person, like, I, I do think that there is some stuff that you could work with there, right? Like, that there, that, mm-hmm. that there is, you know, there is some of that antipathy, you know, being, you know, being directed at the corporate overlords there even if it's in a confused way that's, you know, that's like mixed up with stuff that we don't like. I'd also note that like the seventies, you know, that's at a time when, um, when you had, you know, I mean, it's like, I don't know, it's the era where like wildcat strikes are happening constantly that, you know, that even though it's sort of the beginning of the the great neoliberal turn, you know, it's also, uh, you know, it's also an area where, you know, there was a lot, you know, there was much stronger, organized labor and so there's stuff there that you that like would help channel some of that uh some of that discontent in a you know in a little bit better direction you know even just kind of naturally right you know that that uh you know the people people can see that right so it's like yeah i mean i i think it you know i mean it's 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 frustrating right but like i, I don't you know I, I think there are some some glimmers of light there we're coming up on on time here, and I want to make I want to respect your time to make sure I let you go. There, I have about a thousand other things I want to talk to you about from authoritarianisms and against leftists in Latin America um, to actually trying to project and take the, the conflict in Gaza to its logical conclusion and kind of what that pretends for uh, the Palestinian conflict and the wider conflict in that region. Um, so I'm curious, would you be willing to? put a pin in it and, uh, and come back in sure. short order yeah, and, very, and talk to us. Yeah. Very happy to do that. Yeah. I, I do. I do have to, uh, skedaddle in a few minutes to go teach. Uh, but yeah, very happy to come back. All right. So let me, let me just ask you one final question. What music are you listening to lately? What's, what's the sound, what's your writing soundtrack? What gets Ben Burgess motivated <laughs> to crank out the columns? Uh, yeah, let's see. Uh, lately, Nothing too interesting. I think, uh, I think lately, I mean, like I listen to a fair amount of classic rock, which I, I guess probably doesn't surprise anybody. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I've, I've seen a lot of people joking about, you know, how often I'll, I'll, I'll wear the Rolling Stones, you know, tongue and lick, uh, you know, feature. <laughs> uh, so there's, there's a fair amount of that. There's some stuff. I don't know, like I have, um, you know, I, I guess the most uh, directly political thing, you know, I, I I think I can remember listening to lately was, uh, you know, Sturgill Simpson, but uh, that's, uh, 
you know, it's like a lot of times, like I'll just request things on, on, you know, on Spotify, then like they just listen to whatever it plays me after that, you know, <laughs> okay. honestly. All right. I'll ask the algorithm what's going on in Burgess land. I, I mean, ideally if I'm, if I'm doing, you know, I mean, like, I don't know, sometimes I'll like, I guess I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm approaching the age where it's like, there's, there's a fair amount of stuff that I'll like listen to now because it like makes me nostalgic for listening to it 20 years ago you know so oh, absolutely uh, yeah my, my whole playlist is just comfort food at this point yeah, yeah, without yeah. a doubt yeah exactly um are you a jersey boy are you a jersey native uh no, no no i'm not a jersey native i lived in new jersey for a few years uh in uh in the 2010s but no i have uh i actually grew up in michigan a michigan boy okay yeah. all right all right, that makes sense because I I like you so much, and I you know um it's actually illegal for guys from New York and New Jersey to get along famously, <laughs> um so that that all tracks with me right now. I just want to thank you, not just for the time today, but for the extraordinary work that you do and the prolific amount of work that you do and you put out there. So just to remind everybody, give them an argument, subscribe to it on your podcast feeds. Definitely follow it on YouTube if you're not already, although I'm sure that uh, most of you are. Um, and dig into the back catalog. You have a book on Christopher Hitchens. You have, uh, how many books have you written now? Three or four, is it? Four, although that's that's counting one from an academic press that a lot fewer people read than the the you know the ones you're talking about. But uh, but yeah, okay. uh, but yeah, the, the the big one was also called "Give Them an Argument." Uh, there is uh, canceling comedians while the world burns, and the, <laughs> uh, which is yeah, extended expression of frustration with my uh, friends and comrades. And there's the Hitchens one, Hitchens one, and then there's yeah, there's like a academic book called logic without gaps or gluts uh, uh from uh from springer but there is coming god i hope 2025 we'll see when it actually gets done oh. uh there's uh i am writing a book with Bhaskar sankara and mike beggs who i mentioned earlier about wow. uh about basically what a sort of you know realistic vision of a socialist economy would look like so that's gonna be from versa books called the blueprint that's amazing. That's awesome. And something to look forward to. All right. So make sure you're reading Ben and the Jacobin. Make sure you're following him on everything from podcasts to watching him on YouTube. And uh, Ben, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. And I'm excited to have you back sometime soon. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much.